Hey there, and welcome back to the World Rob Show. It is great to be with you guys again. My name is Robert, Ministry Associate with Ministry State. Here with me always, flexing on the camera right now, my good friend and colleague, Will Stockdale. Will, how's it going? I'm, I'm enjoying the gun show right now. That was for you, Robert. That was just to get you, <laughs> get you pumped up for another episode as we rock and roll. I'm more intimidated uh, than pumped up, but that's okay. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that's, <laughs> boy, boy, this is, this is good. This is good. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, dude, it's good to be back with you. It sounds like you have your, your, uh, your mom is, I don't know if your dad's in town, but is it your mom is in town right now. Yeah. Mom's in town. Dad's back home watching the dog. They have a, they have a new puppy. So what he's got to stay a Sheltie Shetland sheep dog. Okay. So he's back with the puppy. Uh, but yeah, mom's in town and, uh, uh, it's always fun for grandma to be in town to hang for James to hang out with her. We took her this morning. Uh, to the Air and Space Museum out by Dulles, which have you have you been there before? No, I've heard that's a great one, but I've only been to the one on the mall. Oh, it's awesome. Um, the one out in Dulles. This is this is some niche Washington content here for you. Um, for people, this who is in Washington. free, folks. This is even yes. though it's niche, it's still niche. It's still free. Um, if you get out there, out to Dulles, there's a massive Air and Space Museum that's essentially at one giant hangar, um, but they have some pretty awesome aircraft in there, including. Uh, a Blackbird spy plane. That's what uh, I heard. Pretty oh. cool. Uh, the Enola Gay is there. Some Gosh. little World War II history for you. Um, and then James's favorite, my son's favorite. Uh, well, he's got two favorites. There's the uh, Discovery Space Shuttle. That's pretty cool. Um, and he's also a big fan of the uh, F-14 Tomcat, uh, which any Top Gun fans out there will know. Um, he's a he's got a little model one, and he that was the first plane we made a beeline for uh, when we got there today. Well, the wings fold in and out. Yeah, it's sweet, right? It's super cool. Oh, yeah, super cool. It's uh, it's kind of funny. The the um the tour guides kind of we, we go there so much that they kind of recognize him. Uh, but even if they don't, they like he's definitely very enthusiastic when we walk in, and he loves that F fourteen so much. And right next to it is a Blue Angel, which all the kids you know they want to go see the Blue Angel. But James is kind of like, yeah, that's not that's kind of a show plan. Like, let me let me sh- show you the missiles on the F fourteen Tomcat. And I think the tour guides get a pretty good kick out of it. Like this kid knows what's up. Oh man. Well, uh, you, you mentioned the, the XR 71 Blackbird and I don't know if you remember this, but as a kid um, I occasionally got in the mail, these like um, bifold cardstock, glossy um, like information, little booklets, but it was just like, it was just a bifold. It was just two, like four sides, two, sheets that were folded in half and they had like it could be planes or reptiles or like famous figures or whatever and i got one that was the xr71 blackbird and i think you're supposed to like put it in like a a three ring binder or something that you could collect them all together and uh first of all they were super cool super exciting because it's just full of pictures and like little sentences and details but uh i loved looking at that plane it's, it it's flew so high plane. and the people had to wear a space suit. Oh yeah. It's yeah. super cool. I, you know, it's funny. This is, we're going down a rabbit hole, but uh, I'll last, the last thing I'll say is that uh, growing up, we always went to my grandmother and grandfather's house in Hutchinson, Kansas, which is a semi big town for Kansas, but basically a, a small town to anybody else. And there is the Hutchinson Cosmosphere, which is an air and space museum in the middle of Hutchinson. And they, their big claim to fame was that they had a blackbird at their little Hutchinson museum. So when I see the Blackbird, when we walk into the, the Air and Space Museum here, cause it's like right in the middle of the hangar, 
I, rem- I have these, I have these like flashbacks and like very fun memories of walking into the Hutchinson Cosmosphere with my grandma and grandpa and seeing the massive blackbird in there. And it just brings back a lot of fond memories, which is a funny thing to say of a spy plane during the Cold War. But there you go. One of the meanest looking planes ever built landed in a flyover state. It's just a super cool, super, super cool. Um, um, but we don't want to spend the whole episode talking about uh, airplanes, even though we probably could. And it's it's a really cool topic. You know, we, um, we, we, we did talk. You did mention spying. And maybe at some point we'll talk about the ethics of spycraft. Uh, how do we Ooh, that would be a good one um definitely there's a to, lot to talk about that would love to bring someone on and get their take on it of uh what does it mean to be a christian and and in the sense to be a professional um you talk about jericho do you think that there that you you build your theology of spycraft starting in jericho gosh where is the biblical theology of spycraft <laughs> don carson d.a carson get on it we need for Seriously. you stop schlupping around and get your act together that would be dope um but today uh we are wrapping up our conversation on westminster confession of faith chapter 23 on the civil magistrate Um, we're going to be in section four today and uh there is a lot in this section i think this will this part of the conversation will probably be the most um familiar for a lot of people because i think when we think when we think about christians engaging with the state um, the idea of praying and honoring our leaders, that seems to recall a lot of passages from scripture like Second Timothy, Romans 13, things like that. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read it for us, Will, and then we'll dive into it. Um, I'll read the, the modern version. Um, but chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, section four says this. It is the duty of people to pray for those in authority, to honor them, to pay them taxes or other revenue, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority for the sake of conscience. Neither unbelief nor difference in religion makes void the just and legal authority of office holders, nor frees the people, church authorities included, from their due obedience to them. Much less does the Pope have any power or jurisdiction over civil authorities in their domains or over any of their people, nor can he deprive them of their domains or lives if he shall judge them to be heretics or on any other pretense whatsoever." Or whatever. So I get we've got a little bit of civil authorities, and then obviously um, for Protestants, we've got a little bit of uh, commentary on, on the Pope and the Bishop of Rome. But um, Will, when you read section twenty three or section four of chapter twenty three, what what comes to your mind? Well, what comes to my mind when you said that it's most familiar? I think you're right. Um, it is something that I know I'm supposed to do, but I will say it is it is a harder paragraph to think about and focus on because it turns the the spotlight on me and my duty and my responsibility. It, it is, it is common to us as sinful creatures who want to shirk responsibility or point the finger to be like, Oh yeah, you're, you're doing this. You're not doing that. The civil magistrates not following what God has called them to do. And, um, especially in a democracy, there is a place for us to hold government accountable with our voting and, and to make sure that we are putting people in office for just laws, but it can be all too easy for us, especially of late, I think, um, whatever side of the aisle you're on to point out the failures of uh, the other side and how they're not upholding what we would think of as their God given um, responsibility. And instead uh, we need to be looking at, okay, that's right. That's true. But 
on an equal footing. What is our responsibility? And I wonder if the divines are like, yeah, people are going to love this section until they get to the last last <laughs> paragraph. And then they're going to be like, oh, yeah, no, no, we didn't forget about you. We remembered. Um, and here it is. Here's your turn. So there, but like you said, there's so much in here and they, they packed it in and so many um, areas of responsibility uh, for the Christian that is both um, it can be weighty, but it can also be, I think, very imaginative and exciting to consider all the ways that scripture has shown us that we can interact and uh, care for those in governing authority, especially for us at ministry to state, what are things we can do clearly here and and that's this is just specifically related related to civil magistrate. I think we won't talk on this too much, but like just how can we serve those serving in government? How can we care for them in in ways that is not necessarily specifically focused on government, but just on them as as people um, and loving them as neighbors? But yeah, I, I, um, I mean, we can probably just work through this one at a time. Uh, yeah. And the first has to do with. Is the duty of the people to pray for those in authority? Um, duty is not a popular word. Um, it is viewed as something that is only done when your passions aren't there present, when you're doing something you don't want to do. That's not duty at all. Duty can be filled with joy, um, but duty isn't is a, is a must, uh, is a requirement that is placed on us by someone else, and in this case scripture and ultimately God. Yeah. I I'm struck by the, the duty of people to pray for those in authority. Um, just because I I'm familiar and I can, I can point back to times growing up where I remember as a church, we prayed for the president, members of Congress, the Supreme court justices, um, local and state officials, but it was never, I don't, I don't really ever really remember a time where it was, you know, every week you could, you could count on that being part of, you know, the congregational prayer or part of um, the liturgy for that, for that Sunday. Um, I know definitely during the four years of the Trump administration, I don't really remember being in a lot of church services where we did pray specifically for the president, uh, for his cabinet, for, um, uh, members of Congress, local officials. Uh, and what's, what strikes me, I, I now go to a, um, I've been attending a PCA church uh, out here in Manassas that I, I would sort of classify as maybe a little bit more um, uh, uh, old school. Uh, it feels sort of very uh, uh, old school Presbyterian. And every single Sunday, you can count on, you know, part of the congregational prayer is we're going to, we're going to pray for the president. We're going to pray for uh, members of Congress, and we're going to pray for the Supreme Court justices, uh, that they would honor God in their decisions and, and promote the common good. And like, that's just every single Sunday, that's part of the, the prayer. And I think that really reflects well, this idea of duty. It's not something you you know, you do when you remember it, or like when the president is in the headlines, but something we should be doing on our very, on a regular basis. And it's part of our call as Christians. Yeah. And, and to that point with um, the duty is, as of now, it is much easier for us to pray for, to pray for the candidate or the party that we think ought to be in charge or the one that we like, uh, with the exception of probably imprecatory prayers where we pray for <laughs> God's smiting of someone. But generally speaking, it's a lot easier for us to pray for the people we agree with. And that's part of the reason duty is here. And 
um, these men who put together this document understood the importance of praying for people that they disagree with. Remember that that would mean for them praying for a king or a parliament that was doing things that they would not have completely agreed with, that they complete, did not completely um, concur with. And so they they were in a place that maybe is similar to a lot of us that they were they were praying for um, for leaders that that they didn't totally. Um, respect in terms of their legislation, but they knew that they were placed there by God and therefore that they had a duty and responsibility to pray for them. And the same goes for us as well. And it look, and it's for our heart too. This duty is really good for my heart. It is really good for me to pray for people I disagree with. Um, this is an old mother wisdom, you know, she, remember as a kid being like, well, you know, will people that you don't like you pray for them. And it starts to be a lot harder to dislike people. If you, if you're praying for them all the time, um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a really good point there in that um, you you wonder about sort of political polarization in our country, and you know, I, I remember listening to a podcast one time, and they were sort of talking about you know it back in the day, uh, especially in mainline denominations, there was just so much political um, diversity within churches, and one reason why things maybe worked a little bit better or smoother was because, you know, you could, you and your, your uh, fellow deacon, John, could disagree on a whole lot of political matters, but because you worshiped together and you prayed for the, 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 the political leaders together, it was just really hard to like dislike that person or hate that person in, in such a way uh, that you couldn't um, still work together on a lot of important things. And I think that's, that's also, it, 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 praying for our leaders in a sense the duty is not for uh, not just so that we have political outcomes that we like, but it's also a character formation. It forms us into uh, better, uh, not just disciples of Christ and, and followers of the Lord, but also it forms us into better um, Christian citizens, if you will, if you want to use that term, to be um, uh, good uh, uh, neighbors and community members uh, wherever the Lord has called us. And I think that's also another aspect of this praying for leaders is kind of what you're getting as character development. Mm, yeah. Um, I'm also struck. Uh, so honor them. I think that's so broad. There's so much application that you could have there for honoring them. And that's, I can, I'm kind of like looking through it. I'm sort of thinking in my head of different examples where it's like, well, you know, you wouldn't want to honor the leader. I'm thinking of like, sort of put yourself in the situation of Nazi Germany of like, you wouldn't want to do the the salute to Hitler, right? That would be, that would sort of quote unquote be honoring to him, but you wouldn't want to do it. Um, so in those sort of circumstances, what is, what does honoring look like? Honoring leaders uh, look like, especially the leaders that we are maybe, let's, let's not necessarily make it so um, black and white, like let's not necessarily lean on the Hitler example, but with leaders that we consider wrong, morally suspect, um, how would you, how would you apply that? Yeah, it, it, well, it might be so simple as just how do you honor um, anyone in general? Uh, I grew up, I remember when I was a kid, we would go to Texas Rangers baseball games. That was a sporting event for the Stockdale family. And I'm, um, I'm sure the Hassler family went to a few of those, right? And oh yeah, Ballpark Arlington's great. Sure, our, our listeners, you guys out there probably, you know, Nats games or Astros games or Rangers games, but I was not allowed to boo the umpire at all mm. as a kid. That was, that was not, 
permitted. And I don't think I was allowed necessarily to even boo the other team. I didn't have to root for them. Of course, I could disagree with the call, but booing that attitude was just not now as we got older, our parents, you know, gave up on the fight, I think, but fairly, I mean, at some point it's my own, like I have to take responsibility for my decision. So uh, I probably booed the umpire a little too much, but as a kid, that was just not because it, uh, that was not permitted because it was dishonoring to them as an authority. And also probably a good temper check of like, well, what do you think you're doing? Little four-year-old kids standing in the stadium booing this umpire. But I think there may be something of a corollary for us in terms of authority with governments is what does it mean to honor them? Um, doesn't mean you have to support, like you said, uh, a, a, a bad government. Doesn't mean you have to like give give it your allegiance um, in, ten, in sense of saying that everything they do is right. But on the flip side of that is also uh, kind of a, a demonizing name calling of assuming the worst of motives in everything that's done and assuming that everything is done for nefarious purposes or people are idiots, we like to say, which is a fairly juvenile um, response to a lot of a lot of issues that I'm, I've been guilty of before. Uh, but I, I think that honoring could be speaking truthfully and objectively and even passionately of what we think is wrong, but, um, but in a way that's forthright and maybe doesn't revert to a kind of childish, immature, um, dishonorable name calling of. Yeah, I really, I really like that. That's a really good uh, application and example. Um, I mean the umpire. Yeah. The umpire thing. I really like that. I think that's good on your parents that they did that for you. I think that's really important. Um, And it was hard too, as a kid, because everyone else was doing it and it looked like so much fun to be. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's that, it's that, that good, uh, high of rebellion that you get by booing the umpire. Um, I think, uh, funnily enough, my, my mind also went to sort of sports. I was thinking of, um, you know, that every time there's a championship and the the white house or the president invites the championship team to the white house. And uh, I've been to uh, one of those when the Nats won the world series. Um, and, but I've, and I remember watching a lot of them on ESPN because that was always something they covered on ESPN was like, Oh, the, look, the NBA champs went to the white house and, you know, and they always like present a Jersey to the president. And those are always events where uh, even in the most political of times, they're sort of these like lighthearted sort of, you know, we sort of recognize that sports is a big part of our culture. And um, it's sort of fun to watch, you know, the president sort of gets to be a normal person and sort of geek out about sports if they're a sports fan and you know but in recent memory there's been a lot of circumstances where athletes have refused to come um they don't want to shake the hand of the president because they disagree with certain policies or or certain rhetoric or what have you and i'm not i'm not going to sit here and sort of make a moral judgment on whether or not you know that's justified or not but i think one way of honoring um uh not just the the actual people in charge, but also honoring the political authorities, the offices that govern our country um, is to, even in, in, in times where we disagree with our political authorities, having the uh, respect for the office and respect for their authority um, to accept invitations or to um, honor their, honor them by uh, be willing to, you know, do things like that. I think that's also an element where we could see a lot more honoring of our government authorities is, is accepting invitations or, or um, uh, uh, coming together on sort of these non-political moments. Um, I, I think that's also important too, because 
that seems to me to be a pretty easy way where we can honor the authorities that are that are governing us. Um, the, the second or the third thing here is this is a little harder uh, to pay them taxes or other revenue. Um, the Westminster divines are uh, very much coming up on the side that taxing is a legitimate authority of the federal government uh, and government authorities, which I think is in some ways is like, well, duh, but at the same time has come under a lot of scrutiny uh, in uh, the last 30, 40 years, especially as uh, more uh, libertarian or, you know, taxationist theft mentalities have, have arisen. It, it's interesting that the divines, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, authority. There's a lot of uh, duties that the government uh, or rights that the government authorities have to do in order to sort of function and administer the government. It's interesting that the divines very uh, explicitly say taxing, that's a thing. Um, and it's also interesting that, that that's also uh, one of the things that's listed in scripture. So maybe it's just a sort of we're gonna we're gonna pull that out of Matthew, um, and sort of keep that uh, cor- correlation between the Bible and, and the confession, but I think uh, it is an interesting decision to say nope taxing for sure that it that is a legit authority of the government to do that. Yeah, and I think with that I wonder um, questions about loopholes, for example, what are the ethics, uh, moral permissibility of of tax loopholes? I mean if and that's a question, you know, just because someone, something is legal doesn't mean that it's moral or ethical. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm speculating, I'm just speaking here. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I'm not making any assertions, just simply that in terms of um, the, the ethics of, of loopholes in terms of taxes, but I think it does get a little complicated maybe of what exactly, to what extent does this, does this go? Um, but yeah, I mean that, that that is certainly a clear um, uh, uh, responsibility of government, but it also goes back to, you know, if if you do agree previously that God has given us government, that government does have the right to wage war, then um, it, you wouldn't have as much issue with this kind of tax because most of it the, the issues I'm thinking of are are for um, the exemptions people would want because of warfare. And that sort of fighting, but um, I do want to jump ahead. Actually, something that I think is is interesting, and a question here is uh, an interesting point they make is that neither unbelief nor in or difference of religion makes void the just and legal authority of office holders, nor frees the people, church authorities included, from their due obedience to them. Basically, saying that. If you are in a country and the, your leader is an atheist or a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, um, Mormon, whatever, it doesn't really matter that the, the legal system, your, their authority over you has not changed because of their religious preference. And um, in our American context, I think that's very, very important. And I think that we can often... Um, say, well, well, this person doesn't believe the same thing as me. So I don't, I don't have to listen to them. And I think scripture is telling us here through the confession. No, actually that's not, that's not right. Yeah. That's a really important point. Um, I think that that point, you know, church authorities included, 
there is a, a recognition, I think, here of, of sphere sovereignty, if you want to call it that, that um, uh, and maybe a little bit more what would Kuiper would get at is sort of, you know, that there's these there's spheres and then there are a lot of these spheres. Um, it's not necessarily that they're completely distinct all the time, but sometimes there's a little bit of uh, overlap here and what, you know, church authorities and state authorities have have a lot of authority. And uh, in some cases, they are um, going to be uh, protecting certain interests and, and have more um, authority and in, in er certain areas over others. But what what the divines are saying here is that in these matters of 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 the state uh, of proper government authority, yes, even church authorities, even pastors, um, they they are account they are accountable and responsible to obey the, the the government authorities, and I think that's a really important point. Um, it's not that sort of church authorities and state authorities are are inherently or by nature set in this sort of uh, head against head clashing uh, role, but that they are actually um, placed in in particular spheres for certain particular things to work together in certain cases and in some cases to sit under uh, under each other. Um, and I think that's that's a really important point that the divines are making and so probably something we would be better or, or it would be good for us to remember um, as we consider, you know, how we approach um, politics and government, particularly in a era where it feels like the government is becoming more hostile um, towards the church, uh, that to, to remember that no, the government does have proper authority. In, in some cases, it is exercising that authority well. And even our churches, even our pastors are responsible to, to respond and listen. And I think that's really important. Well, yeah. So that, and, and here's where something gets interesting. Here's where um, the dynamic occurs, the interaction, maybe a little bit of friction. In paragraph two of this chapter, if you remember when we go back, it says that those in governing authority are to write uh, to create wholesome laws, that the wholesome part is, is important there. That's the adjective describing the laws, that they are to be wholesome. In this paragraph, it says that, that, that Christians are to obey their, their lawful commands, which makes me think that there's some kind of connection there uh, and that the obedience is not just blind. It is not just to anything that the government says, that if there are laws that are contradictory to scripture um, or conscience. And I think, which is, which is interesting to say in that uh, getting off track a little bit here, but as we're so psychologized and we're, we're so inwardly focused, the, the whole idea of, well, that affects my, my psychological well-being and therefore my conscience. I don't think that's exactly what they're talking about here. What we mean by conscience, the, the idea of conscience is, would be one that is informed by scripture that is structured by scripture. And, and here there that needs to be remembered in that regardless of what someone's religion, as long as those laws are not contradictory to scripture, they do not have to be um, obeyed. And I mean, geez, I'm thinking right now, the Texas abortion law that was just passed, that's going to be, uh, interesting to follow, to see how that pans out, um, people obeying that, but, but it's definitely going to cause quite a, it's already kicking up a lot of storm, I think in the States. Yeah. Well, I, I'm wondering also if, and maybe we don't know the answer to this question, but something that does also strike my mind, you know, you talked about, you know, laws that are contrary to scripture or contrary to uh, the conscience. Um, 
you know, lawful uh, or wholesome laws uh, or lawful commands. Are, do you think also included here are uh, uh, laws and commands that are improperly administered via the um, legal authorities uh, in our system? I mean, does that is that included here? I, I wonder about that as well, um, because uh, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of, a lot of things that are done in our politics and, and legislation that is done um, contrary to the way that the system is supposed to work or supposed to be set up. Um, do Christians have a, a duty to uh, uh, follow uh, whatever's happening, the, 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 uh, the law or the rule or the guideline, uh, even, if it's not, even if it's implemented in such a way that's unconstitutional, let's say, for example? Um, I think that's an interesting question that needs to be administered. I, I would probably just knee-jerk reaction. I would say there's going to be a lot of application of, of prudence there. Uh, and what is, what is the, the right decision for me as an individual, me as my family, you know, and then maybe my, my community as a church? I, I think those are really, really hard questions. And, and, and I, to put my cards fully on the table, I, I think that's largely the questions we've been asking around COVID and guidelines. Um, and I think that has contributed maybe because we don't have a full-fledged uh, vision of what Westminsterian public theology is, that we've had a tough time adjusting to some of these things. I, I don't know. I'm just th kind of throwing that out there. I don't really have an answer for it. I'm just saying I, that just seems to be something I've, I've witnessed. Oh, it's definitely one of the, the, the question of the, the different avenues that you can take from this, of what exactly is the lawful command? How are we to think about that? What if it is improperly administered, administrated, like you said, does that change our requirements to obey it or the command to obey it? Um, yeah, I think those are, and what that means, I think going to have to be hashed out and going to have to be discussed and engaged um, by, by people and thinkers. And, um, and I think that will lead to probably a healthier engagement in general with, with the public. But the last thing here, and we'll, we'll kind of skip over this and not skip over it, but it, um, you know, it, it's not as important for us, but it, I think it was important at the time um, is that the Pope does not have any authority or power of jurisdiction over the civil magistrate. Uh, this just goes back again to the earlier distinction that is made between um, the, 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 the church governance that we saw in chap, par paragraph three and civil magistrate and where the different roles are for each other. And that's just reiterated here directly in terms of the Roman Catholic church. Um, yeah. The Westminster divines surprise, they're not Catholic integralists. Um, and so uh, that's kind of like the basic, obviously application, but I think what you're right to, you know, for Protestants, it's like, okay, obviously the Pope isn't over uh, in control of the government authorities. They don't, they don't have to answer to him. Uh, but I think for, especially in 2021 for reformed Christians reading this too, I think, we should, we should also read into that as, you know, our pastors, uh, if you are in an episcopacy uh, or an episcopal form of government, maybe you're Anglican, your bishops, like they, they don't exercise uh, authority over the civil government um, in an absolute sort of way. Um, the government authorities don't derive their power uh, from church officials. Uh, they do derive their power from God, but not um, from church officials. And I think that's, that's important. And, and, it, it raises a lot of interesting questions. I think um, the, obviously this is the last section. And so there's just a lot of questions I sort of have left. I, I, I think, why couldn't you spell out exactly 
you know, what is the proper relationship? Tell me like, what, what is the church supposed to be to the state? Can you, can, I feel like if I was around, uh, if the Westminster assembly was happening right now and they had given me this, this chapter, I would have been like, I need like 15 more sections because I have all these questions. Uh, but I think what's important here by leaving it at this, they've given a lot of principles, a lot of basic building blocks. And I think what the Westminster divine say is, okay, Reformed theology, Reformed churches are going to be spreading across the globe, and they're going to be put into different contexts, particularly of different civil and political contexts. And what we are giving them is a blueprint, a, a some sort of basic principles. Of, this is what we believe the Bible says about church and state, and you're going to have to apply it into your particular context, and that's going to look different on base places, but here's what we do now, um, and sort of go forth from here. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Obviously, they're, they're thinking... It, very much within their context as, as uh, 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 the British church or the English church. Um, but I think that by keeping it very uh, basic, by keeping it very foundational, uh, they, they did end up creating a document that is incredibly helpful for those of us who don't live in the same sort of uh, context today, uh, and that we can still apply a lot of these situations to our particular political contexts. Now it's good. I feel like that's a good place to, uh, to conclude our conversation over these four paragraphs that we hope have been helpful to you. They're helpful to us. I know they're helpful to me to think about and uh, assess what is the, uh, a firm foundation for biblical understanding of the relationship between the Christian and the state and the state to, uh, the church as well. What, how are these to interact with each other? And there's a lot more obviously to discuss and, you know, there's a lot of, 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 of current events that we haven't talked about. A lot of things that have been happening. There's a, a new uh, tax bill that is in the works, of course. I know a lot of people are thinking about um, it's about to be playoff season for baseball. It's postseason. So, yeah, there's plenty, plenty to talk about. We'll hopefully get back to that stuff next week. For sure. Yeah, I think this has been great. Um as always, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at RD Hassler. Will's at Stockdale Will. Uh, make sure to check out ministrystate.org. Uh, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends. And with that, we'll see you guys again next week.